You are a God of word. And all that you say to us in your word is true. The truth that sets us free. You are God of word. You have spoken your word of truth. And your word has become flesh in Jesus, our Saviour and our Lord, who just at the right time entered our sorry world, our broken lives, entered our world to take our sin, to take your wrath, to destroy the devil's work and to make us the children of God. Speak, O Lord, that we might be safe. Speak, O Lord, that Jesus might be exalted. And speak, O Lord, that you will be glorified. In the name of Jesus alone we ask. Amen. If I were to ask you, who is the most famous Singaporean now? Who is the most well-liked Singaporean? And your answer is... Maximilian Zeng. <laughs> if you haven't heard of Max Zeng, you're not Singaporean. So here is Max Zeng, right? And Max Zeng has uh, become an overnight social media sensation. Firstly, the British have never seen a person like him in the university challenge, right? He's so good in geography. And so you just have to show him a glimpse, just, just in case you do not know who Max Zeng is. I thought I better show you because some of you, huh? So yeah. <laughs> Let's see. There, uh, sorry, picture's very small. He's on the left-hand side. Do you see that? And if you zoom him, his hairstyle is much to be desired, some people say, right? But he's become a global star. You give him a glimpse of a map, just a glimpse, he smashes the button and smashes the opposition. He gives, and just a, a picture of this. Name the city and the state. Firstly, you say, yeah, Malaysia, is it yeah, Malaysia? Uh, Myanmar, is it Myanmar, is it? No, it's somewhere in India. And he could go bang, bang, bang. And yeah, the Singaporeans say, go get them, go get them. That is Max. And one commentator said, rumour has it that Google Maps confers with Zeng before any map inclusions. <laughs> Another netizen said, you can drop Zeng in the middle of the Pacific, he'll still find his way home. Right? And one called him the greatest human satellite navigation system. He's the walking atlas. Are just a few titles given to him. And one user asked a question, can someone ask Max Zeng where the charger to my phone is, please? <laughs> so you may want to get his number and you'll never lose things. He is that good. There is nothing like being recognised, nothing like being treasured and appreciated for who you are, your, the, the gifts that you have, the contributions that you have. But I read a very good article by Grace Yeo in Channel News Asia, of Channel News Asia, and she said, ponder this, ponder this. National pride can morph into its own beast. And how does national pride in an individual morph into its own beast? When our nation's expectations on an individual turns him into an icon, and then in him becoming an icon, we sometimes forget the humanity behind that person. And just in case all that was too complex for you to understand, national pride can morph into a beast. And under the weight of a nation's expectations, an individual turns into an icon and we lose the sight of the human behind it. 
And she said, people start to project their hopes and their dreams, their beliefs and their worldviews onto an individual. From nationality to race, the person is flattened into a representation of who they want them to be. And so Grace interviewed Max himself, Max Zinn, and he's well known as Zinn in the UK, right? And he was with an amused tone, Zinn said that someone had shared this with her, right? And so someone shared with Max Zinn. Zinn can be more aggressive going forward because his demeanour is always, you know, so shy. He can be more aggressive going forward. No need to be subservient in his body language. Why? Because the Asia Pacific is rising and the centre of gravity have shifted to the Far East. That's how we move and make an individual an icon. How a small town boy becomes a hero on the global scale. And then she, Grace, shared another story on Link, right? And someone commented, another story that could come out of Max Zeng is a talented, talented Singaporeans never are recognised in their own hometown. We have to go abroad to find success. Look at Joseph Schooling. And look now at Maxon. Here in Singapore, maybe in JC, maybe in school, Maxon will be called a geek, a nerd. He'll be ostracized. You put him on a world stage and he smashes his opponents. But says, she says, remember Joseph Schooling? He was at one time on the pedestal, being our number one Olympic gold winner, first. And then he didn't even qualify he went to the Tokyo Olympics and didn't make it through round one, round two. And then there was a lot. Singaporeans just split down the middle. Who on earth is Joseph Schooling? Never, never underestimate what national pride can turn an icon into. And so, here is the important thing for us to realise. The gap between personal and national expectation expectation, and personal and national reality, the gap is failure. And the greater the failure, the fiercer the rejection. The higher the expectation of the icon, the harder the fall. And ask yourselves, why do marriages fall apart? One reason marriages may fall apart is because you married more and more so with such a high expectation of happiness and a very low tolerance of pain. And the moment you experience a few days, a few weeks, a few months of pain in your marriage, you conclude that this marriage is not from God, and this marriage cannot carry on, and you have made one of the biggest decisions of your life, that your marriage and your family is premised on your high expectation of happiness. The gap between expectation and reality is failure. And the bigger the failure, the fiercer the rejection. That's what happened to Jesus. They were expecting a political, powerful Messiah to deliver them from Rome. And so he was, they projected all their hopes onto him. And so in the early part of his ministry, for about 12 chapters, Jesus is hero, the last, and he's earning the popularity of the crowds. It may have begun with just the 12 following him, and then it grew to the hundreds, and then it grew to the thousands. If he had a 
it had a social media account, it would be thumbs up. Almost everybody liked him. But as he headed towards Jerusalem, recorded always in the last half of every gospel, popularity turned to hostility. They deserted him. And do you remember the scene in chapter 14? The scene in chapter 14, Judas has decided to betray Jesus by selling him out to the chief priests and for a bag of money, silver for the Saviour, silver for the Saviour. And the arrest will take place this way, in the stealth of night, darkness, no street lights 2,000 years ago, in pitch darkness. How do you identify someone in the face? He walks up with a party of the chief priests and the soldiers that are there, and he kisses Jesus on the cheek. The soldiers rush forward to seize Jesus, and one, most likely one of the apostles, drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And what did Jesus say? And Jesus said to them, Have you come up against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day by day as I entered Jerusalem, what is the living evidence as I was there in the temple area? When I was with you in the temple confronting you, why this old religion, this old temple was corrupt and spiritually bankrupt? You did not seize me. Basically, Jesus is saying, I did not come to overturn the world. I am not here for regime change. It's not by arms, it's not by fight. All the national pride and personal thing morphs into their own beast. And one commentator said, they all left him and fled. Why do you think it was precisely at that point they all left Jesus and fled? Did they flee out of fear? And the commentator, I think, is more right than wrong. They didn't flee out of fear. They were ready to fight. Any so-called Messiah of any group, beginning with the zealots of the first century, they were willing to lay down their life. It was the next Messiah, which one will actually throw, overthrow Rome? They left him and fled because he now was turning out to be a meek and weak Messiah. It's not that they feared. They would have looked at him with stunned realisation. What happened? Isn't this what we came to Jerusalem for? Regime change? What happened? Bang! They left. Never underestimate what failed expectation might make you do. So over the last two nights and the last two talks, and exploring the last moments of our Lord Jesus' life, love, suffering, and finally death, we explored the sin that I never knew. And from the chief priests, to Judas, to Peter, to the disciples, we saw this trail of sin. We know that it's sin, singular, that killed Jesus, our rebellion. But what manifestation of sin, sophisticated sin that hides, that looks good while doing evil, that looks angelic while plotting evil against the Lord Jesus. Presumptuous sin like Peter, though all deny you, I will never deny you, and the rest said the same, that hides. And then transfers sin at the end, at, as all blame him. 
And we've asked again and again, we'll ask again today, which ones of this are you most prone to in your heart, in your thoughts, from moment to moment? Which ones of this? And please don't say you and me are immune to any of this. For the heart is deceitful above all else. And the only difference, the standout distinctive difference between Jesus and the apostles, the new Israel being constituted by him, except for Judas that betrayed him, who betrayed him, was Jesus at Gethsemane. Jesus watched and prayed. And as Jesus watched and prayed, right, what did he watch and pray against? He prayed against the devil's work. The devil's work that brought sin and the penalty of sin, death into the world. He prayed against the flesh that was weak. He prayed ultimately that no matter how hard it was for him, he would do the Father's will for the Father's glory, for the people's, for the church's salvation. And so we say, we come to a very important truth. Jesus watch and pray. Let's call that WAP. Jesus WAP, right? WAP is finished. He completed it perfectly. But the churches and Christians watch and pray has just begun. We need to capture that afresh as Christians and churches around the world. And today, if you come, you haven't given your life to Christ, you need to capture this afresh. afresh. Because day by day as you live, what is it that you will face? This is what you will face again and again. You will face Satan tempting you in thought and word and deed. You will face the weakness of your flesh. You will face whether you listen to God or not listen to God. And so, in chapter 15, what do we hear? The two main words was handed over, handed over, king of the Jews. And handed over warns us of the danger. What fatal danger? Let me ask you, what fatal danger do you face in Singapore? And we all say COVID. What fatal danger do you face this morning? It was the rain. I'm so glad I woke up at four. I live at the back of the church. I said, my goodness, it's raining. Will anybody come? And you have come. I do not know if the Presbyterian Church has 700 faithful remnant, we are okay. You came, and your friends came with you. Double thanks to God for your presence with us. So the fatal danger of every group handing him over, delivering him, Judas handed him over for money. The chief priest handed him over because of envy. Pilate handed him over because of cowardice, the fear of men. The soldiers handed him over because this is our duty to the cross. And each one flippantly mocking, parodying, humiliating Jesus as King of the Jews, which is a, both a display and a warning to us. Please never get used to what? Please never get used to dismissing Jesus without consequence or accountability. And so I want to say to you and everyone tuning in, Jesus' watch and pray in Gethsemane. Gethsemane is the prerequisite before Calvary. If you think you really understand what Jesus did on the cross, and we're going to look hard at that today, and then you understand his resurrection from the dead, please remember the only reason he could endure the cross and rise from the dead three days later was because he went on his knees 
in Gethsemane. You and me have to capture this afresh. This is a stunning gospel story and a stunning gospel truth that we need to understand spiritual warfare. We need to understand, watch and pray. And how do we need to... See, who did he bring to the Garden of Gethsemane? Peter, James and John, the inner circle. They all fell asleep. Three times he came back, three times he found them sleeping. Did you ever ask, after this, after his death on the cross and after he rose, what on earth happened to Peter? What on earth happened? Did they learn about Gethsemane and Calvary and the resurrection? Peter would finish his first letter by saying in 1 Peter chapter 5, be alert, watch out. The same language, watch out. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He took, he took spiritual warfare seriously. Then we got Peter, we got James. What about Peter, James and John? And John will write in 1 Peter chapter 3, Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil. Which means all three of the inner circles started to take WAP seriously. They had begun their mission to the church, mission to the world, by taking in Gethsemane. When the church embarks on proclaiming the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus without watching and praying, we are skirting on thin eyes. We are running on empty. We are actually doing it by flesh. And so that's vitally important, my friends. And so... From Gethsemane to Calvary, show me what that means. So the apostles watched and prayed, Peter, James, and John. And later on, Paul comes into the picture as apostle to the Gentiles. And his crowning thing in Ephesians 6 is, finally, I want you all to put on the full armour of God and take your stands against the governments and take your stands against the devil's schemes. All the apostles now take Jesus, watch and pray seriously. Christ's watch and pray is finished. Your watch and pray and my watch and pray has just begun. Without that, there is no mission to complete. We'll be sitting duck for Satan and his work among us. And so, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It comes down to God and Jesus. And what is it that we see here? The first thing to take note is darkness was over the whole of the land. What do you think this means? And some say it could have been eclipse. Some say it could be God's turning His face. So have you ever watched an eclipse? There was one, uh, one a few years ago. And I do not know, uh, are you interested with eclipse? So my wife, Mona, and I, we went to watch that. And we watched that at, at uh, Nanyang uh, JC, just nearby. And we stood and we waited and it happened. It finally happened. And all of a sudden, it's like everybody was in, in a shade, right? It's a bit, 
And you, you, you look around there and everybody is in that uh, sepia tone, right? And sometimes you, you make your pictures like sepia tone to, to cut away your wrinkles. And as you look around, I can tell you for the hundreds of people watching that eclipse through, you have to watch it not with your bare eyes, but through things. And nobody stood there and said, oh, evil has come. Because that's the real meaning that's here. Not an eclipse, not simply God's disapproval is there, but in the words of one writer, Jesus was baptized and drowned in cosmic evil. The Son of God willingly, helplessly, surrendering to be overcome by Satan and the demons, which has been recorded again and again in all the chapters of Mark from the beginning and so vitally important for us. So what do we see here? We see the first arm of Gethsemane. He's watching and praying against Satan and Satan's work. His soul is sorrowful to the point of death. And then he cries out, My God, my God. This is God's forsakenness. This is God's forsakenness. But he pleads, Not my will, but yours be done. And then this, this thing that Jesus says, there are 150 psalms. Of all the 150 psalms, when Jesus hung on the cross, I want to ask you, do you, if you say you're a Christian, which of the 150 psalms is your favourite? And which one will you quote in a moment of crisis? Your mind will surely go automatically to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The mind of Jesus did not go to Psalm 23. The mind of Jesus went to Psalm 22. And if you call title Psalm 22, it would be called, The Lord is not my shepherd. For I'm a righteous believer and I'm calling out to God. The whole of Israel are righteous believers. The righteous believers among Israel call out to God and God listens to them and helps them. I'm a righteous believer. I call out to God and He doesn't answer me. What does It works for others. It doesn't work for me. What does that make me? That makes me a marginalized worshipper. That makes me a freak worshipper. Other righteous people trust in you and you rescue them. And so it goes on. The background to Psalm 22 is vitally important for us to realize. For the dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones, they stare and gloat at me. They divide my garments. Hey, does that look familiar? That was just quoted by the narrator when the soldiers beat him. When the soldiers beat him and they put a purple rope around him, it was Psalm 22 fulfilling itself, fulfilling the person of Jesus. And what do you see there at the cross? Men behaving like beasts. Men behaving like beasts when do we behave like bees? We behave like bees when we go to red light errors. We behave like bees when we murder somebody. We behave like bees. No, friends. We behave like bees when we embark on sophisticated sin. Doing wrong but looking right. We behave like bees when we deny that we are vulnerable to things. We behave like bees when we have transferred sins. You and I are worse than we ever thought. And so Psalm 22 
is the choice, first psalm of the Lord Jesus. And then, what do we find? We find that Jesus, he uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. He breathed his last here. Sorry, did I show you something before my notes? Let me go back. And so we find men behaving like beasts. Sorry, miss, miss a slide. And how does that work? In a moment of self-interest, in a moment of self-importance, in a moment of self-pleasing, in a moment of self-righteousness, in a moment of self-glory, you and me become worse than we ever thought. So one of my sisters came for a holiday a long time ago, and we brought her to different places and finally brought her to Sentosa. And went to Sentosa, I must confess, oh, they just opened this place here and um, that's, you know, wonderful recreation place and let's go down. And it was the, the escalator to the, the casino. As we took the escalator down the casino, there were television screens on both sides and it was so beautiful and straight into the casino entrance, right? Of course, on the sides were all the restaurants. And I was thinking to myself as I brought my sister there, I'm a pastor, I shouldn't have brought her here. But never mind, I've not been here myself, but okay. I hope nobody sees me bringing my sister here. All right? I'm going to a restaurant, I'm not going to a casino. But I was thinking, if I was a gambler, with a little bit of weakness about gambling, and some of you could have come from those gambling families, your father and your mother, who will promise again and again, the last time I'm going to spend... The last time I'm going to gamble, bang, $10,000 gone, $100,000 gone, and the whole family goes into the cycle. It never recovers. When a gambler goes down there, sees all the bright lights, he's going into gambling hell. But I thought to myself, the invitation to hell never looks so good. That's Satan. The invitation to hell never looks so good. In a moment of self-pleasing, my gambling a moment of self-importance, in a moment of self, you basically say to hell with others. You're willing to leave your wife on the side, leave your children on the side. You're willing to stab each other in the back. Sophisticated sin? Yes. Yes. Presumptuous sin? Yes. Transverse sin? Yes. And so it's vitally important that we realize this, brothers and sisters in Christ. This psalm, Psalm 22, the Lord is not my shepherd. And then Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And we ask ourselves the question, ask yourself, was Jesus' life taken? Was he killed? Or did he give up his life? There are two different things. If he was killed involuntarily, that means he didn't surrender his life for us. This statement is, Jesus controlled everything, though he looked like he was totally out of control. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. The whole purpose for him being born is to die. You understand Jesus' death, it will change you forever. Jesus is not, he did not die by misadventure. So why did Jesus die? Yes, the lowest reason why Jesus died, he died because of our depravity, our sin, 
And the last moments, our sophisticated sin, our presumptuous sins, our transfer sin. The highest reason Jesus died was he was fulfilling God's will, the sovereignty of God. But in between God's will, the hour and the cup, the hour and the cup, taking God's wrath for who we are and what we did against God, what stands between sovereignty and depravity is Jesus' humility. His utter, complete humility. And that's why his humility pinned him to the cross. They said to him again and again, come down, save yourself. The very definition of Jesus is he will not come down. He did not come to save himself. That's why Jesus died. And where was the preparation for all this? Gethsemane must precede Calvary. He sunk to his knees. That's why he could endure both the agonizing physical pain and the crueler, more agonizing relational pain of being forsaken by God. To embark on your life without watch and pray. For us as believers, to say as churches that we can go and fulfill the Great Commission without Gethsemane is to really shoot ourselves in the foot, to open ourselves. So what did Jesus accomplish? And when the centurion who stood there facing him saw this, right, truly this man is the Son of God. Truly this man is the Son of God. You know, the gospel opens and God says, this is my beloved Son. And then at the transfiguration in Mark chapter 9, this is my Son, my beloved Son. Two times the word love is used. God loves His Son. God loves His Son at His baptism, the start of His ministry. God loves His Son, a glimpse of His glory after He suffers, a glimpse of His glory. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. And this is how we listen to Him. And so, how does the gospel end? The gospel ends in, the, this, the death of Jesus ends this way. With a centurion, a Gentile, not the chief priest, not the scribes, not the elders, not the religious leaders, not the disciples, saying there at the foot of the cross, they were not there at the foot of the cross. Because they did not embark and watch and pray, the disciples. It was the centurion. What is the centurion very used to? A centurion is very used to arresting enemies of Rome. A centurion is very used to seeing his soldiers being given freedom, complete freedom, after the Roman governor has passed judgment guilty. You can do with the prisoner anything you want. And Jesus faced three rounds of horrendous inhumanity to fellow men. They beat him and then he had to carry the cross. The centurion is very used to seeing people impale on the cross. And I read to you from the commentator, right, that there are various ways of impaling. You can impale through the eyes. You can impale the person, the criminal, through the genitals. You can impale them through their hands and their feet. But through all the hundreds and thousands of arrests of torture and crucifixion and impalement to the cross, he has never seen someone like Jesus. Never. From the time he was arrested 
And Pilate asked him, Are you king of the Jews? And he says, You say one, not I say. That's English for all those tuning in from overseas. I, I didn't claim this. You said it. And it's divine irony. Everything there is divine irony. Which means that on the human surface, horizontally, it looks like he's a fool, a lunatic, a liar going to the cross. But from God's lenses and perspective, spiritual enlightenment and spiritual maturity, which the disciples never had, because they didn't stay awake with him, he was the Son of God in human flesh, hanging there to cancel your sin, to take God's wrath. This is the hour. This is the cup. This is the Son of God. What has Jesus done to you and me that you find him so hard to believe in? What has Jesus done to you and I that you are unwilling to surrender your life for someone who gave his life for you and me who are so undeserving? You and I are worse than we ever thought, but Jesus is better than we could ever imagine. Amen? You and I, in all your moments of honesty, when you're struggling with that anger that is murderous towards your brother, when struggling with that, with that unforgiveness against your spouse, when you're struggling with envy of someone in life, at work or in ministry, when you're struggling with unforgiveness with someone, when, when you and I are just going to the gaming and the vegetating and the pawning one more time, you are worse than you ever thought and you cover it up and only one person knows you to the core, knows me to the core. Oh, Chris, you are worse than you ever thought. Oh, Stephen, you are worse than you ever thought. Oh, Annie, you're worse than you ever thought. You are worse than you ever thought. But I'm better than you could ever imagine. Surely, this is the Son of God. Because He is. He's now risen for us. So what lessons for us? There are four moments in Jesus' last three hours. Darkness over the land. Forsakenness by God. The first time God ever turned his face against his own son, his beloved son, and poured his wrath on him. The openness of the temple torn into, and the invitation not simply for one race to be safe, but all races. The fact that we sit here as Singaporeans, 2,000 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, tells you that everything that happened there 2,000 years ago is absolutely true. And you can absolutely lay your life down and believe in Jesus. Amen? Surely, this is the Son of God. So you're worse than you ever thought and Jesus is better than you ever imagined. And you must ask yourself in the next moment of sin that no one may see in your life. And I hope that God convicts you so much that you will be driven to your knees and as you are driven to your knees by God in your room or somewhere in the park, you are driven to your knees. Say, so why do you bother with me, O God? Indeed, why does Jesus bother with you? O stubborn sinner, O recalcitrant sinner, why does he bother with you? 
I've asked that question all my life since 1979 when I heard that gospel. And that's why I preach and by God's grace try to live this. That my life is consumed by Christ. That your life should be consumed by Christ. And what does this have to do with you and me? A few things in application in closing. From the personal to the church front. If we were to watch and pray in our relationships, then maybe we would stop hating each other so much. You know, in the first year of the pandemic, big thing came to us, right? Two words that we never met, cabin fever. Cabin fever. You never knew you could be short, so short-tempered when everybody lived together 24-7. You thought that when all of you are together, it'll be like going on holidays together. Holidays together and 24-7, uh, home-based learning, work from home, four of you uh, fighting for space, it's not very fun. And for Mona and myself, the counselling spike, not, be, not for us, uh, but for others, Cabin fever, Pastor Chris. Cabin fever, Pastor Chris. I never knew I could be so irritated from morning to night by my husband. Everything he did, uh, I don't know why I married him in the first place, no? Too late, lah. You never knew how sinful you could get. You're not merely frustrated or irritated by your spouse or your children, your father and mother. You are angry. Angry to the point of livid. Livid is, I betahan. You watch and pray. You do the Gethsemane in your life. Then God may show you how deeply, tightly you hang on to hate in your heart against your loved ones. May show how little Jesus' love has gripped you. Because if Jesus' love has gripped you, you will move from cabin fever to cabin heaven. Boy, is that possible? So we conducted many weddings here. And one of the weddings, you know, weddings, weddings are full of joy, but there will be one moment in which there will be tears, which is that moment when the couple gives thanks to their parents. Usually, lah, huh? I rate it as 75, 80%, 90% of the time when they give thanks for their parents. But this groom got up and said, my father, what can I say about my father? He's a very strange father. No? Right? I come back from work. Right? I, I just come back. I just walk through the house. And my father, if he's sitting there, if he so happened to be home, he said, Son, you're the best son in the world. Then he said, I haven't done anything yet. How could I be the best son? And as he shared that, I broke out in laughter listening to that because I just preached at the wedding. That's why I tell my wife, my kids all these years, I try to, Mona, you're the best wife I've ever had. She says, I'm your only wife. Right? <laughs> okay? I tell my son, you're the best son on planet Earth. You're the best daughter on planet Earth. We try, if you love people, you're generous with your encouragement. You know what Satan and sin does to you if you don't watch and pray? You are stingy with your words of encouragement. Your wife has spent half an hour cooking that dinner, 45 minutes. This one, how come it don't taste like my mother's one? Huh? <laughs> For the life of me, be thankful you got food on the table. Right? You're just grouching from morning to night. My sister sent me something good. I hope I can get it. Today is the last day, so don't worry about the time. <laughs> My sister sent me this. Right? When do you think you're going to change? From being stingy with your thoughts and words and deeds, stingy with your love, 
but so generous with your judgment, so generous with your sarcasm, so generous in your put-down of others as you elevate yourself. When I woke up this morning, I asked myself, what is life about? And I found the answers in my room. The fan said to me, the fan in my room said to me, be cool. <laughs> the roof said to me, aim high. The window said, see the world? The clock said, every minute is precious. The mirror said, reflect before you act. The calendar said, please be up to date. And then the floor said, I mean, do you get any messages from the floor? The floor said, kneel down, pray and be thankful. You will reach such a generous state of mind of absolute thankfulness when you're flat on your back in hospital. You know when I appreciate Mona the most? I suffer from vertigo. When vertigo hits me in my dizziness, I'm totally spent. I'm a useless human being. Totally useless. And everything Mona does, you are a gift to me. You are angelic. You are Mona. 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 Other times when I'm under pressure, hey, Mona. Hey, you know how busy I am? <laughs> Even we can come under pressure while doing ministry. When we don't watch and pray, friends, in our relationships, we could be so nasty and so stingy in our thoughts and words and deeds. I want to say to you, whether you belong to the Presbyterian Church, whether you're seeking, begin here. This is, out of the heart comes all kinds of evil. Out of the redeemed heart comes all kinds of goodness. Amen? Then you pray and watch in marriages. Why do we judge each other so much and so quickly? You may be married for five years, ten years, but you still know so little about the person. You know so little about her background, how she grew up, what she faced in school, the bullying he may have experienced. But you judge each other so comprehensively in our marriages and our families. Jesus, he knows you true and true, but he judges you so mercifully, so graciously, Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love will always give you the benefit of the doubt. When was the last time you gave the benefit of the doubt to someone within your home, in your heart? You're walking around with this in your home and some of us are walking around, strutting around like this in our churches. We know each other so inadequately, but we judge each other so comprehensively. And so our hearts must change, our marriages must change, our homes must change. What else can change? I said in the first talk, the pandemic is ending. The pandemic is ending. So it's the beginning of what? It's the beginning of watch and pray. That if before COVID-19, you were a utilitarian worshipper. What is a utilitarian worshipper? That you need Jesus to solve your problems more than you treasure Jesus to save you from sin to save you from yourself, then you're utilitarian. If before COVID-19 you were like that, now coming out of COVID-19, you must stop being a utilitarian worshipper. And before COVID-19 hit you, you were a nominal worshipper. You had no problems coming to worship on a Sunday, but your Sunday is totally dichotomized and decoupled from Monday to Saturday. Actually, your Sunday morning is decoupled from your Sunday night. You may have come to service. Actually, your Sunday morning could be decoupled from the car park. Many, many years ago, right? 
After the service, Pastor Chris, you got to come down to the car park. I said, why? Somebody scratched somebody's car in the car park. Huh? And I have to go down and solve that problem. Didn't I just preach the gospel? Yeah, it's one thing you preach the gospel, it's another thing at the car park. <laughs> That's how we become decoupled. We might as well call ourselves functional atheists. You're not a Christian, you're a functional atheist. I turn up for half an hour to an hour on this, but Jesus being Lord of my thoughts and words and deeds are totally gone. And why do you function that way? Because you didn't do Gethsemane before Calvary. The way to prepare for services, and I'm so glad you all came to this. May you all come back to on-site service, barring for the, the few, the, the older and those who are sick who, who cannot come back, and rejoice together. Your preparation for Sunday service is not you wake up at 8.30, service at 9 o'clock, rush, 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 quarrel, 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 Tell your teenage daughter, why are you dressed like that? Ayo, join the church. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Come back, jump in the car again. I told you not to dress like that. So many people look at you. And then, uh, my goodness. Your preparation for Sunday begins on Saturday. That Lord, Lord, tomorrow we're gathering with fellow worshippers. Is there an opportunity to invite a friend who doesn't know you yet? Is there an opportunity to sit with someone who could be suffering from cabin fever, someone whose heart is breaking? Make me a blessing to be a blessing to others. And if I sit with someone after the service of communion, I see them crying, give me the words to speak to that person. That's Gethsemane before Calvary. That's vitally important. And please, as I said in the first one, I started a ministry for, for senior pastors. I've gone around the world. There are many wounded pastors. I've been in this, this is my 32nd year. And Paul says, I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in Jesus' suffering. Surely he's not saying that Jesus' atonement on the cross is incomplete, his suffering. But Paul is saying as apostle to the Gentiles, you know why I'm suffering? You know why I'm suffering? I'm suffering like the wounded chief shepherd. I'm suffering as a wounded under-shepherd. And I'm suffering for the sanctification and healing of the church. pre-COVID, if you walk around, pointing out the wrongs of your pastors, lightly accusing them. Post-COVID, there are so many of us who are wounded. If I could write a book for pastors, it would be filled with tears. You can't hold it up as a, because it would be drenched with tears. The tears they cried behind the scenes for you, on your behalf, and sometimes because of you. And so we've got to stop that, friends. And watch us pray as churches. Do you know that Jesus never acted on his own? It was according to God's hour. It was to take the cup. Everything was done according to God's time. Everything. But the question to ask yourself, as a Christian and churches, are you acting on your own? Are you running without God? You become that functional atheist. You become that nominal believer. Are you running ahead of God? Running ahead of God, meaning what? I'm so impatient to do this thing. I'm so impatient to get this relationship. I'm so impatient to get this ministry in church. I'm running ahead of God. Running behind God is, uh, Lord, I don't want to embrace suffering. Lord, please make others suffer so that I can pray for them. You can't be slow in embracing suffering. God has a quota of suffering for you. 
Amen? That's vitally important. There is an hour for this. There is a time for this, for everything. So post-COVID, what does that mean for us? We've got a roadmap for our EP churches. And the roadmap is we must engage in watch and pray. How can we help our pastors? How can we help our elders and our deacons and the leaders of small groups? How can we really think honestly about Sunday services to carry this message of Jesus' love to the world? How can we think about how to evangelize somebody, how to build each other up? What about our youth who are now facing sexuality wars all the way from sexual plasticity to transgenderism and that's going to be huge after we come out of COVID-19? I promise you, and the debate will centre around 377A, which is not the point. The point is, after 377A, what comes after that? And our mission is, who can we reach from the 700,000 foreign workers here to the overseas mission that the whole of Southeast Asia, the majority of Southeast Asia, still do not know the Lord Jesus? Amen? I mean, not amen, good. But amen, we must go. But please don't think you can fulfil the Great Commission if you haven't done Gethsemane. And so important that we get this. And this is our reality paradox. That God turns Good Friday to Easter. That Jesus wins by losing. And you have to understand that. That the church, you are strongest when you are weakest. Or you are strongest when you are meekest. That's how we live out. That's watch and pray. That's Gethsemane before Calvary and the Great Commission. That's vitally important for us. The Lord Jesus has come for us. We must learn from Him. The time has come for us to do this. And so, Pilot Chesley Sullenberger was flying a US Airways Flight 1549 on January 15, 2009, when a flock of birds hit, and it hit both engines, and both engines and all engines died and the plane started to plunge. As he plunged, he had a very hard choice. Do I have enough fuel to turn back? Or do I land this plane on the Hudson River? And he called upon all his experiences as a pilot of 30 years and landed that plane, landed the plane, right, safely. There was investigation after that. And the investigation that will always happen, aviation investigation, was did he do all the right things? Did he tick all the boxes in terms of governance, priorities, things that he had to do? He had enough fuel to turn back to the nearest airport. But he was pleading with his co-pilot. It was life and death. We were plunging. There's a human dimension here. It's under human effort to save or human error to kill us. And by God's grace. And as they investigated him, he got more and more concerned, strong word, depressed. His main concern as he got out of that plane, as they landed on the Hudson River, is he asked his co-pilot, how many? How many what? How many passengers died? How many survive? And he said to him, 155. The full load of them survive. 
As a pilot, your singular passion, your singular responsibility is to save every passenger on your plane. Jesus had one singular thing. Everybody around him was saying, did he tick the boxes? Did he keep the law? Did he, did he do this? Did he do that? No, 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 no. But Jesus died and saved you and me. That's enough for us, don't you think? And that is the message for us. Some of you may have come here and you're invited by your friends, you brave the rain, and you may not know why your friends invited you. It's their small way to say to you, Jesus has loved me and saved me. I'm not better than you. I'm not more religious. I'm not more moral. But I know Jesus is better than I am. I'm worse than I ever thought. And I want you to believe in him. That's what they're saying. And I pray that today you can give your life to Christ. I love my late brother-in-law very much, Indian brother-in-law. He, has come to this, he came to the service a few times to listen to the gospel, or many times when he came from Malaysia. I tried to convince and explain the gospel in light-hearted, in, in not-so-threatening ways to him. He came down with cancer. I remember going to see him one last time, what turned out to be a last time. And he had done so much for my family, so much. And we all call him sir because he was a teacher in our school. And I leaned over to him and said, sir, I don't know how to tell you, sir, but you can call upon Jesus, right? And Jesus will love you and help you. And at that point, I don't know what happened. I just overwhelmed with tears because I didn't know how to tell him that Jesus is his, his answer. And my second sister had to come along and comfort me. He died a few months later. And my fifth sister, who lived in the same house, said, you know, before Sir died, he called out, Jesus, help me. Jesus. Jesus. He didn't call on any other God. That's what we are trying to do for you. We may not be able to say it in so many words, but we know Jesus loves you, and he has loved us. This is the Jesus you must know, the Jesus who laid down his life for you. For the rest of us who think that we are Christians, we must embark on the watch and pray at every level. Then our life and our witness will never be the same. If I had a hope for the Presbyterian Church, is that we'll be shining lights as we embark on Gethsemane must precede Calvary and the Great Commission. Let's pray together. Please bow for a few moments. Moments of settling your heart with God. We are so prone to turn heroes into villains when we project our dreams and desires on them. But our heroes can become villains when they fail us. Lord Jesus, we are so sorry 
for turning you into a villain. When you came and you died because of our sin, you died because of the devil's work, and ultimately you died because of the Father's glory, obeying his will. And in doing so, we must proclaim, surely this is the Son of God. It is in your utter complete meekness that you, the so-called villain, becomes our saviour. This is the gospel paradox. And we pray for those who have perhaps not believed in you, that today is the first day of the best days of their life, by confessing their sin and believing in Jesus as saviour and lord. For all of us who claim ourselves and presume ourselves to be believers, we pray that by your spirit and your word, you will convict us from being utilitarian and nominal worshippers to worshippers who from this point onwards will watch and pray against the devil's schemes, against our own sins, and for the Father's will to be done. And raise us as shining Christians and shining churches for the salvation of the world, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.